Well, good morning and happy Easter. Here we are. I am preaching to an empty theater on Easter Sunday morning, just like we dreamed it up a few months ago, everybody. Welcome to Eastlake Online, an Easter version of it. My name is Brent. If you're watching this for the very first time, uh, normally I would say something like, thanks for taking time out of a busy weekend. I know you had other options, um, but that's not entirely the case uh, this time around. But we are glad that you would do something like check out a church, uh, an online experience. I know that's kind of a weird thing, and we're all kind of feeling that out anyways together. So uh, we're glad that you're here and watching. My name is Brennan, the teaching pastor here at Eastlake. We typically meet uh, 9.30 and 11 on Sundays here and then uh, just, you know, online for the foreseeable future. Until then, we are filming this live. It's literally uh, 10 o'clock. We just did trivia. My wife just hosted trivia with Leslie. And uh, we, we do it live because we like the raw, unedited, like you get what you get sort of authentic nature of this thing. We figured if you're ever going to come and check it out really in person, you'll be used to kind of bad jokes and, you know, mediocre, awkward transitions and all of the other things that come along with uh, doing things live. So that's true. Today, we're finishing up the conversation that we started a few weeks ago. Uh, we're teaching series here. And uh, so it's a third part of a series called A Religion of Nobodies. And if you've missed the first two parts, it's not really necessary to watch those two to kind of in- be interested in today. But if you enjoyed what you watched today and, and you want more conversation as a part of that, you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks and catch up with those two at a later date. Don't do that right now because we're, we're busy. We got things to do. But um, basically, the concept of the series has been this, that Christianity as a religion is kind of unique in that it was not really, it didn't get started as sort of a top-down sort of thing. It didn't begin as a top-down religion, something that people in power created to kind of control those underneath their power, um, something that was used by the privileged and the powerful to gain more privilege and power or whatever, um, something from the elite handed down to the non-elite, from the highly educated to the proletariat. Uh, very, very different. That's not to say that it didn't eventually get institutionalized. Of course it did. Uh, eventually it becomes a weapon uh, wielded by the powerful and the privileged to gain more power and, and, and more privilege. But from the very beginning, it really wasn't like that. Um, if you've ever written off Christianity uh, because of exactly what I just mentioned, because it felt like a tool, like a power play or whatever, perhaps um, you would uh, entertain the idea of critiquing certain iterations of something uh, without uh, necessarily throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? There, you can say that, yeah, I don't like this, but I like actually the beginning part. I like how it started. I just don't like what it evolved into. For instance, if all you'd ever watched was episode one, two, and three of Star Wars, I wouldn't even blame you for not being a Star Wars fan, right? But you got to really go back to the beginning and then really appreciate to understand all of that. And the truth is, Christianity started out differently. Um, it started out as truly a religion of nobodies. And what I mean by nobodies is just people who were uh, everyday kind of Joes. The way of Jesus was populated by non-impressive nobodies. And nowhere is that more clear than the experiences of what we read about and what gets talked about every Easter uh, Sunday in terms of the Easter experience. I mentioned at the beginning of the series, the goal for this series was really to get you to understand and to appreciate something significant about the Easter story that you may not have seen before. Something about it that we kind of roll through kind of Um, getting to the other parts of of, of an empty tomb and angels and all that kind of stuff, and really fail to appreciate the magnitude of who was participated, who was invited to participate, and and who this story entirely 
uh, relies upon. So I'm going to read the text for us, and then I'll go back into it um, and kind of follow along there. It's going to be on the screens, and if <clears throat> by chance it goes too, I walk to the, through this too fast, you can always get everything that's on the screen onto your phone by typing the word notes uh, and sending a text to 97,000 on there. But here's what it says. On the first day, this is Luke chapter 24. By the way, there's four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them have stories about resurrection in, in some way, shape, or form. Four different men writing their perspectives on it. Some of them were there firsthand. Some of them, like Luke, got their perspective handed down to them from other people doing some research or whatever. But here's his take. Here's his version of the story that we'll stick to uh, for this year. On the first day of the week, <clears throat> very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Uh, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, and, uh, the 11 disciples and to all the others. Uh, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. That is essentially the story. All four versions uh, of the, the gospel story, of the, uh, of the stories of the teachings and the person of Jesus feature some sort of rendition from this. They're all close. They're not exactly right in the same way that if four friends went to a movie and afterwards were just, you know, had to describe it, write it down. What do you think? What was your experience of it? We'd write things down differently. And imagine, um, imagine some of these things written 20, 30, 50 years in some cases after the events. You can imagine that people would remember sort of uh, things differently. There's a little variation, but nothing you wouldn't, that it's out of the ordinary for these, depending on the author. Um, so in all, but what's significant is in all four accounts, it's always a group of women heading up to the tomb. Or in John's case, in John's version of the story, a single woman. But even with that, there's like some, like, there's an oddity. There's something being told in that sort of scenario. More on that in a little bit. And they're heading up to the tomb where they knew the body of Jesus had just been entombed a few days uh, prior. In fact, uh, a lot of the accounts, they had seen him be buried in this tomb. They knew exactly where it was. And they're heading back up um, to this, uh, this spot where they knew their, their former leader, their former master, their former rabbi ha had been buried. And why are they doing this, right? Is it because they're expecting something to happen? There's always a motivation for why people do the things that they do. So one of the common questions about this has been, are they going up because they expected this to happen? Are they going up to kind of like all right, I remember when the sun was setting, you know, this, they're going to be three days and today's the day. Are they going up uh, to, to, to expect a resurrection? The answer is always no. At this point, it's so incredible, incredible to remember that we see things from a modern perspective with the end in mind. We know how the story ends. We, we've been around enough Easter's to know the tomb is empty, right? But for them, at this point, in, in their moment and in their context, the story was over. Everything that they had kind of invested their, their, this last season of their life into was now gone. Hope was gone. I mean, there was no Christians at this point because there was no Christ. Jesus was just a really good teacher at this point. And somebody we had a lot of hope in, but now that hope is gone because when somebody you follow who says they're going to protect you and, and have your best interest in mind 
can't even protect themselves from death and from public crucifixion, then like there's, there's no reason to kind of hope that he can do anything for you. It's the, the game's over at this point. They're not going up there expecting a resurrection in that way. My guess, and I, I bring this up almost every Easter, because um, I think it's interesting, and I think it's a, a funny perspective on it, but my guess is they're going up because it's a rewrap job for them. And what I mean by rewrap job is this. Jesus is crucified on a Friday, right? We know that. Um, and Jewish Sabbath starts on Friday at sunset and goes through Saturday sunset. So for that time, um, they're not supposed to do active work. They're not supposed to, you know, go out and do things. It's a very much a uh, time off uh, sort of uh, period of uh, relaxation, focus, attention, concentration on things that are most important in life and not producing stuff or whatever. So in haste, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, a man of prestige and power, significant, somebody in that era, somebody in in that time frame, um, called in a political favor to bury the body quickly, the body of Jesus quickly, so that it wouldn't remain exposed to the elements. Because typically, crucifixions that take place, they wouldn't have people who, you know, they didn't have close friends. A lot of them were uh, traitors, criminals, and to be associated with that person would be something you didn't want. And so these bodies would be left to hang as visual reminders for the rest of the community to not cross the empire, to not cross the people in authority. And so, but Joseph knows, like, if we don't do anything, nobody's going to be able to do anything for several days because of Sabbath. So he calls in a favor uh, to be able to get the body and do something with it. His request is surprisingly granted. We're not even sure why it's granted, but Pilate grants the request. He calls up another friend named Nicodemus. Uh, And the reason that Nicodemus might be familiar, he was another closeted sort of um, Jesus fan. Uh, He was the one that wanted to talk to Jesus about what salvation meant, but he asked him to come like in the darkness, the shroud of darkness at night. Like, I don't want people to know. I don't want my neighbors to know that I'm into this. Like, please don't put any like, uh, you know, church signs in my yard. (laughs) I'm interested. I'm a big fan, but not big enough to kind of risk public exposure about being a follower of Christ. Still very dangerous and cautious at the time. And so uh, just so you know, I'm a big fan, but I just can't like blast it on Facebook. Like we're not in a relationship on Facebook. You know what I mean? It's it's complicated. That's where it's at. Um, And so he goes and gets Nicodemus, who again is also somebody of significant Uh, prestige and power, has influence in this. Both of these guys come, and they together begin the process of taking Jesus off the cross and going to the tomb. Here's how John records it in chapter 19. He says, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. He reflects in this. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, which shows that he's got some money, he's got some resources. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. So men of money, and power are now dabbling in embalming, something that they would not normally do. This was not kind of their focus. This would be left to other people. So you can imagine their level of workmanship in the process of embalming. It probably lacked sort of expertise or even, not even expertise, just any sort of uh, common understanding of how this whole thing works. So to illustrate kind of what I mean by that, uh, back in the time before, um, which is, that's what we're calling, my wife has been calling this whole before the quarantine thing. So in the time before, do you guys remember restaurants in the time before and concerts and, and baseball games? Crazy. One morning a week, Kylie, I know this sounds dangerous right now, Kylie would get together with some friends and kind of go on a walk. She was in like a small group thing and they would do, they would meet at our house at like, I don't know, some ungodly hour, like 7 a.m. And they would go, just kidding, uh, it was like earlier than that. Anyways, they would go for a walk around this loop together um, and then I would be responsible on those days to get our kids ready for school. And if you... Uh, 
if you're not, you know, if you, if you have kids currently in, in, in elementary school or grade school, you know the difficulty, you know, even in high school, getting them up out of bed or whatever, but you know the difficult process. It shouldn't, like on paper, it shouldn't take that long, but you know, it, it just does. And so I'm in charge of that for those days. And so breakfast, easy, right? Cereal, toast, whatever. Lunch is packed, not as easy. Gogurts and string cheese, but we make that work. And then all of a sudden, our, uh, our six-year-old daughter, whose name is Jovi, she'll come to me and she'll say, Daddy, can you do my hair? I need to get my hair done. London takes care of hers. Grayson's easy because it's just, you know, throw a little gel in there or whatever. But Jovi's is a touch more difficult with this. And I remember like the feeling of looking at my six-year-old daughter and her hair kind of looks like, uh, like a little bit like Medusa-like uh, something. I don't know, like maybe she stuck a fork in an electrical outlet. It's just kind of all over, like the static or whatever. And if you want to picture visually my uh, mindset as I'm looking at my daughter who's asking me to do her hair, imagine the first time you saw a Rubik's Cube, right? Think back however many years that was. And you look at it and you're like, I kind of understand like what I'm supposed to do, but like, I don't know where to even start. And I don't know, every, every move that I make feels like the wrong move. And I just don't, that's kind of what this absolutely felt like. Um, every once in a while, Kylie would make it back with like two minutes to spare. So she'd get back from her walk. I've, I've done the lunches. We've done the cereal. I've done Jovi's hair. And, uh, jo- and then Kylie would walk in and there'd be like that two minute window between the bus is almost here. All the kids are out there. Everybody's like screaming. Everybody's jumping around doing all that excitement stuff. And then she sees uh, Jovi and Jovi comes running up to mom and goes, mommy, 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 daddy did my hair. And I can see it. I can see the wheels turning in my wife as she looks at the hair and looks at me. And I'm like in that like, I'm kind of proud that I did it, but I'm not sure if it's good or not. And she's like, can I send my daughter out looking like this to school? Am I going to get phone calls from somebody? Like, and it's like that weird game of chicken where she really wants to fix it, but she also wants to like, let me know that I, you know, good, good effort, good try, like thumbs up for, you know, doing what you need to do. So that, that's what I'm talking about with like needs a rewrap job. So we, I think we know, or at least we think we know why these women are headed to the tomb that morning because they knew that these two rich and powerful, you know, having nothing to do with, have never done this before, have now been entrusted or the only ones allowed to access the body of Jesus. Um, so Saturday sunset was like this, oper- they, they knew, all right, in the morning, we got to go and finish the job because, you know, never send a man to do a woman's job in that way, right? So anyways, um, imagine then Luke now, a respected doctor, because again, Luke was not one of the disciples, Luke is a guy who was a follower of Jesus, very well educated with resources, um, and, and watched Jesus from afar, but didn't have all of the hands-on experience with him. His method of getting all of the things that are out there and onto paper is him kind of doing a bunch of investigations, kind of like a journalist or a researcher or a reporter. In fact, in, his, in the very beginning of his, um, his gospel story, he writes and he uh, does like this epigraph to the, per, his audience and, and, and his, this person he's writing this letter to, Dear Theophilus. I took it upon myself. There's so much stuff out there written about the person of Jesus. I took it upon myself to do some investigative journalistic reporting about what stories are true because you're going to have a lot of things out there. Let me, let me tell you what I know. And so he's not there this morning, but he's, he's, he, after years and years, he's doing all of this research, compiling this information. And I have to imagine he's sitting down with some of these women who were represented there or heard the stories from those people or whatever. And he's asking all of these follow-up questions. So like the rock was gone, but that like, did that tip you off that something was weird or how does that work out? So it says there, uh, and you said in the, in the quote, and he writes this in there, that their clothes were glowing or gleamed like lightning. Um, what do you mean by their clothes gleamed like lightning? Are we talking like 
a sequin outfit? Like what's happening? How would you describe what's taking place in this? And, and then there's this part where the angels or these two men or whatever, the, wearing the sequin dresses or whatever, said something to you. And they said, he's not here, he's, he, you know, he's risen. And then he said, they said to you, don't you remember what he talked about? Remember how he said something about this? And it's, it's the question of, is that a chastisement or is that, a, or is that something different? Like, it, how, could, how dare you not see and connect the pieces together? That could be one interpretation. Or I think what's taking place is this is kind of like, the, they're the ones that have been entrusted with the very first um, thing to be able to interpret the code. The, the, they're the f- first ones to kind of begin to put the pieces together. And this is the, this is the angels or the messengers or whatever. Um, first way of saying, you're gonna, everything's going to be changed now. You're the first ones to kind of see a little bit of a twist to be able to understand all of the, what previously happened and what's about to come. Let me solve the first part of the puzzle for you. Let me put in the corner piece. Let me attach the first two pieces of the puzzle. And, and I'm not going to finish it for you. You're going to spend your, the, the rest of your life discovering this. And, and humanity is going to spend the rest of history kind of putting the rest of the pieces of the puzzle together. But for the very first time, let me show you a little bit about what we're talking about with this. Remember how he told you in in three days. And this shows up, by the way, in multiple accounts. Remember, in all three accounts, there's some sort of an angelic messenger saying, he talked about this, guys. And yet, the reality is, none of them believed it. There was no line that day when the women got up there. There was no other group of people. There was no people going, are you here for the uh, resurrection too? Back of the line, get back of the line. You you gotta take a spot. We, uh, We want the best view. We got here early enough. There was nobody there. Um, because nobody expected this. This was out of the blue. This was not something that, um, that any of these disciples wrote them into the story as nobody believed, but I did, right? Nobody understood what was going on, but like Jesus and I had this sweet connection. I totally understood with all of this. It, and then to, 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 for him to kind of highlight not just the group of women who are in there, but also to write in Mary Magdalene. In fact, in John's version, she's the only one that's up there, um, which, you know, did he get the, the story wrong or is he trying to prove a point? There's questions about that. But Mary Magdalene, we know her story, right? She shows up previously in several of the gospel stories as the one who uh, washes the feet of Jesus with a bottle of expensive perfume, and when she's there, the Pharisees can't stand the fact that she's doing that, that she's getting this FaceTime and close connection time with Jesus, because many of them look around and go, we know where she got, where'd she get the money for that perfume? Oh, we know where she got the money for that perfume, right? There's a, uh, an issue of reputation involved in this. And yet that's the kind of person who this entire Easter story at this point hangs upon. You, you're basing your testimony on a group of women and then specifically one involved where can we really trust their testimony against something this big? Which is part of the reason why we get verse 11, which is this, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And this word nonsense, um, it shows up, the Greek word for this only shows up in this one instance that Luke writes about. And it doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. It is a Jewish medical term, and it makes no surprise that it shows up in Luke's writing, because again, he's a doctor. So he pulls from his uh, academic background of being a doctor, and he writes this word in here, because this word nonsense basically meant all of those things that people in a state of medical delirium, 
uh, when they're, when they're like, kind of like uh, on the verge of sickness, they've got a super high fever, they're about to die or whatever, and they start kind of babbling off and they start saying things. And, and in that moment, you're like, you're not taking them for truth. You understand that they're just trying to make sense of the reality or, or, or they're just spouting off things. He, this is what he's saying. It sounded to them like people in a state of delirium who are so helpless and lost, they're just trying to do anything in this term. And it probably did feel like a bit of nonsense. I mean, if I, for example, today, if I started off today and I said, welcome to you know, Easter, my name's Brent or whatever, um, and I said something about, along the lines of, you know, COVID got me this last week, just so you know, guys, I was in the Cadillac morgue for like three days. I just got out, just couldn't see myself missing Easter. Like you would be right to be like, turn that off. Like that guy's out to lunch. That's like the G-rated version of what you'd probably say. But you'd say something along those lines of, that guy's crazy. Like I can't, I'm not gonna believe anything that he says in that way. So yeah, it probably feels to these disciples who have this group of women coming down going, guys, the tomb is empty. And then there's some dudes in like sequin dresses and they're telling us that he's risen and that this has something to do with what he talked about the entire time. Like this isn't something like um, uh, that, we, that we shouldn't know about. Like now we're, we're trying to think back on everything that we'd been heard. You know, Jesus taught us from the very beginning and this is beginning to make sense to us. And they're like, yeah, but you're alone in that because this doesn't make any sense to us, they probably thought it was a bunch of drivel and a bunch of nonsense, but there's also part of this that falls under the consider the source criticism. And what I mean by that is um, there was probably a bunch of guys listening to these women tell the story and go, yeah, but can we really trust these women? Can we truly trust these women? And I, and I say that because um, we've been talking in, in the series about not only the rise of Christianity, um, but um, a lot of times why there was a decline in the Roman Empire, because this takes place in a context, right? This is a uh, provincial Roman uh, town, uh, that Nazareth and, and Jerusalem and all these things, on the outskirts of the empire trying to make sense of people with power, and, and these things are happening, and Jesus is killed by people in power, so this is all relevant in this way. And we said that last week, one of the causes clearly for um, the decline of the Roman Empire was their inability to be able to handle epidemics. Um, and then this week, uh, what we see is um, in the empire, in that time, uh, one of the reasons is people try and make sense of why the Roman Empire couldn't survive is a shortage of females. Uh, that women in ratios uh, to men were significantly less there. Population studies for Rome during that time estimate 131 males for every 100 females. And that maybe sound close to you, but I mean, you know that it's about 50-50 in kind of an unregulated state. So as a result, sex ratios this extreme can only occur, this is what these guys say, uh, can only occur when there's someone or something tampering with human life. And what we know about Roman history is tampering there definitely was. Exposure of unwanted female infants and deformed male infants was uh, morally accepted. It was legal and widely practiced by all social classes in the Greco-Roman world. A study of inscriptions uh, that they found uh, basically able to kind of discern 600 different family trees found that of these 600 families in this genealogical family tree, only six raised more than one daughter in their family. Um, the rest less or at one at most. A letter from a laborer in Alexandria that we have that, was, that we captured or is, is an ancient document that we see, um, wrote this thing to his at-home, soon, soon to be you know, pregnant, or she is pregnant, sorry, not soon to be pregnant, that would be awkward, um, but, but soon to give birth wife, and he writes this, know that I'm still in Alexandria, Egypt, and, and do not worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria, I've got work to do or whatever. I ask and I beg you to take good care of our baby son, 
And as soon as I receive payment, I'll send it to you. And if you're delivered of a child before I come home, because you're pregnant, and if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. Meaning fully legal to say, we just can't afford to raise our family in this time. And, and this discard it would be leave it, it would be exposure, put it out on the porch and expose it to the elements. That way you're not actively killing the, the child. Basically nature is doing that for you so you don't have to live under the guilt of that. Under the law in Athens, Greece, a woman was classified as a child regardless of her age and therefore the legal property of some man at all stages of her life. The testimony of what happened on Easter was entrusted to a group of, for all intensive purposes in, in its historical context, and obviously I don't mean that today, but in, in, in this world, in the context at which this thing jumps out at us, a real, truly, honestly group of, of nobodies, like the story, the whole, the, the thing that this entire thing hinges upon. I mean, Paul would say, if Jesus did not raise, then all of this is worthless and you are you know, alone in your faith and stupid and we should be uh, looked upon disfavorably above all people. To waste our lives trying to live in the way of a person and to have it not mean anything, that'd be a, a total waste. And that whole testimony is based on a group of nobodies who come down a mountain and say something happened. A a woman's testimony in court proceedings at the time would only be allowed as a last resort, and even then with a good deal of skepticism or trepidation, like, can we really trust them? We don't really know. And yet this story did. So then why, oh why, would you trust the biggest news of your very fragile religion to the testimony of women, and specifically one with a real sketch past, who's the only one who shows up in all four different accounts? Why should we trust these Nobody's. And that is truly the question. That is the big question of Easter. And if you're a Christian, right, and you're watching this at home and like East Lake's part of your home deal and, and you, you know, you, on a normal Sunday you'd be here or whatever and, and, and you would say, you woke up on, on Easter Sunday and, and posted he is risen. Like you're not afraid to like, you know, be out there or whatever. Like it's understandable for you, like you've grown up with the faith or, or this is just a meaningful part of your life. This whole story and this, this angle of it perhaps feels pretty par for the course. Um, and to, it helps to make the case for the authenticity of the events. I mean, if you were making this up, this is my take all the time. If you were making this up, you wouldn't write it this way. You wouldn't trust the hinge piece of your religion to the testimony of disreputable and questionable uh, testimony of people, right? You would do it with all the rich and the powerful. You would have Nicodemus uh, and, and Joseph Arimathea be the guys who said, we saw something, we can't deny it or whatever. It's the right amount off to feel legit. Right? There are some stories that are too polished and you go, it just feels like that was made up. Like Everything kind of works out and it's amazing how it works. But then there's sometimes some people tell you some things and it's just the right amount off where you're going, guys, I, I know it's crazy, but I, I just think they're telling the truth. I mean, why would you say that if it wasn't actually true? Now, if you're not a Christian and somehow you're watching this on Easter because you feel obligated or whatever, and we're so glad that you would, and, and we want to be a church that is fully like aware of you and accepting of you, and, and we hope that this is a safe place to check these things out. Listen, I, I would understand like the pushback on your side of things. If, if, I'm, if I'm in that position and I'm not, <laughs> and I hear a story like this and a perspective like this, I would say, well, yeah, but we kind of all create narratives to be able to handle pain and loss in our lives, don't we? Like any time that we've gone through pain and loss, we do something to kind of explain ourselves. Because again, we're, we're meaning-based beings. We try and do this. So we, we, we say stuff like, um, uh, well, everything happens for a reason, right? We, we don't like to handle, we don't like loss, especially loss of life, which feels so final. And so we'll say it all happens for a reason as a way of kind of making sense for us. Imagine following someone who treated you as a somebody. I mean, this is what you'd say. Why, why would this take place? Well, 
Why would these women make it up? Well, imagine in a world where you've been treated your entire life as a nobody, and then a guy named Jesus comes along who's got religious kind of qualifications and people refer to him as rabbi and whatever, and he begins to treat you as a somebody, and you felt like a somebody maybe for the very first time. He does, he engages his efforts and and leverages his influence or whatever to defend your cause, to show you genuine care and concern for your well-being. Um, This would become a key part of the early church, by the way. Women would be in, you know, positions of leadership in in the church, um, as you see in Paul's writings in in his letters, hey, greet so-and-so who's a deacon at the church and do this and this and this. And they would have platforms and influence of in, in, within the church. They would have nowhere else in life. So if you were women, uh, this would be a positive thing. Could you blame them for wanting to keep this thing going? For the very first time, we feel like we're somebody um, because everybody else treats us like a nobody. And so we're going to make up, we got to keep this dream alive. So yeah, we saw an empty tomb. It could, of course, be delirious Babel. I mean, it could be the construct of somebody trying to uh, facilitate pain and loss in their life. Like, those are all legitimate questions. But there's like always something that is lingering and something that I think gets brought up every Easter. And, and you hear this story and you read this and you think there's a little piece of hope because we all feel like a nobody at some point. And we say, yeah, but what if it's, what if it's not? I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Everybody that we've ever known who's died has stayed dead in spite of our best efforts to be like, dude, please, I would love to see my dad one more time or my grandpa one more time or whatever, but they just, it just doesn't happen. And so this story, we get it and we think that just doesn't, that's just not how life works or reality works. I understand. But what if, what if it's not? What if it does? What if the Easter story is true? It could be somebody making something out of nothing, but what if it's more than that? And that is why we see Peter. And I didn't, there's one more verse within this paragraph of this. You open your Bible and they're kind of split off into kind of different sections. There's one verse that shows up where I think this is showing up in Peter's mind. Peter's one of Jesus' disciples. He's the one who denies him three times. He had perhaps one of the, some of the most to lose in all of this. And when everybody else hears the women and they say, we just, it's so cute, but we just can't believe you, like, that just doesn't work. Peter is in a position where he, something crosses his mind where he says, yeah, but what if, what if it did? What if this time is different? Which is why in verse 12, Peter, however, got up. In this story, the only one who does, and ran to the tomb, and ran to the tomb. Luke makes extra efforts to say, he didn't like linger there, walk there, I'll stop by if like it's convenient ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And no angels, no confirmation, no, this is what happened. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. What if it didn't? What if, it, what if, what, if what they're saying is perhaps true? I need to go look for myself. And even when he goes, he sees that something is different, something is off. And now I've got to choose whether to believe the testimony of people who are questionable or whatever. Um, What am I going to do with this? 
And we're all kind of in that position. We're, we've got a little Peter in all of us, right? We're, we're all in that spot where that, a little bit of his personality, a little bit of himself reflects in us. We rarely get confirmation about essential beliefs from angelic beings. Like, I, it's, never, it's never happened to me, right? At least I don't. Maybe you do, and it's great for you. All of my information about faith comes from the testimony of others. This is all the testimony of others. I, I've never had an angelic being. I, in, in fact, had I had an angelic being or an experience in that way, it would be really easy for me to believe. I'd be like, I don't care what you believe. Like I freaked out one day because I went up to this, you know, whatever. All of these, this is, but this is just written testimony from a bunch of nobodies, honestly. And the question is, what am I going to do with this? Is this good news about a way to live, a new way of living, just delirious babble? Or will I choose to invest time and energy searching empty tombs, wondering what happened and what it might mean to me? And that is the question of Easter. That is the invitation of Easter. Uh, and in case you're worried that you're not good enough, smart enough, well-behaved enough, or religion, uh, religious enough, May you and may we always remember that this is and has always been a religion of nobodies trying to live in the way of somebody. So this year, may you celebrate Easter and may you have uh, time with family. May you experience this. May we read this story and perhaps choose to spend the rest of our life chasing after and wondering what it all might mean to me. And how do I grow from this? So happy Easter, you big bunch of nobodies. To close this off, we are going to uh, take a little bit of a break. We're going to come back in just a minute and do uh, a little bit of a Q&A with John Inman. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of Easter, out of your time today and spending it with us. I have one short benediction to read for you, and then you can either sign off or stick, on, stick around for a little Q&A. And here's my benediction to send you out. Give us patience and humility with our feeble efforts at faithfulness. Bless the minute things we do in your name so that our small acts of faith may find witness among many and thereby glorify you. Amen. May that go with you this week, whatever you're facing. Happy Easter, you big bunch of nobodies. See ya. Well, thanks for uh, sticking around for a little bit of a Q&A. I'm here with John Inman, and uh, John's been serving on our East Lake board for the past, I don't know how many years, several years, and just a voice of uh, influence for me personally, but then also here at the church. And it's also super nice because we've been doing this Q&A, post-service Q&A now for like four weeks, but every week we've brought up people who are like objectively better looking than me. And so it's really <laughs> nice this week to have something that's a, a little bit more uh, in line with kind of... The, uh, <laughs> The opposite, really. I mean, really nice. So. I tell you, I was going to start off with a compliment about, about the message, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a little long. And, yeah, you know, sure, maybe. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, thanks for being here, though. I really, I really do appreciate it. Um, uh, John has uh, been somebody who has, his insight has been helpful for me because did not grow up in a Christian home, did not grow up religious, kind of had a late in life sort of awakening, conversion, whatever you want to call it, and has always been a strong voice of why we do church for people who really aren't interested in church. Um, his work environment is very, you know, secular oriented. He's in the car business, um, and we all know car salesmen. Um, just kidding. Uh, he's a car salesman, I can say that. Um, uh, and so it's always refreshing to have that kind of little voice in, in the back of my ear, like going, 
but what does an unchurched person think about this kind of stuff? And so my, my first question for you, because, uh, oh, by the way, you guys can submit questions to us, and then uh, Andrew's going to send them to me on Slack, and we'll try and address them, whether they're based on uh, the talk today or just church in general or just, like, I don't know, just perspectives on our current state of the community or whatever. That's uh, anything like that. Whatever's all of it's fair game. Um, you can do that in the chat box below. But I'll start with just a question for you. Um, knowing that you have that perspective, what do you look for in the Easter story? Because the Easter story doesn't change every year. It's always three days. There's tombs always empty. What is your goal for, like, for us as a church or, or just like, what do you hope gets across every year to people who are doing like life, like doing the mundanity of life and trying to make sense of, you know, religion and being a good person and, and spiritual, whatever. And then, and then you've got this kind of like, Easter story that's not like be a good person. It's like somebody rose from the dead. Somebody beat death, right? So how does that translate to me and how I uh, uh, live with my wife and, and raise my kids and sell cars and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, you know, Easter is really kind of um, the church's Super Bowl in, in a lot of ways and, and an opportunity for us to communicate the Easter story a little bit differently. And, you know, since I started coming to East like 10 years ago, uh, the one thing that stands out the most is a group of nobodies, if you will, that are impacted by the love of Christ and doing church in a way that makes the Easter story sound differently. You know, any of us can go online or, or we can you know, show up at a church, a mega church or any kind of church and get the typical experience of, of what that message sounds like. Um, but again, today, you know, I'm impacted just by the idea that the story of the resurrection of Christ, what everything that we believe is based on, um, the fact that he rose from the dead, that's a crazy story, but it's extremely, extremely relatable as well. And when it's told by a nobody, um, <laughs> it, clearly, yeah, and, and it's told by a nobody throughout history, you know, whether it's Mary Magdalene or, you know, where, whether it's the Samaritan at the well, the people that are impacted by Christ and the love of Christ, as they tell the story, um, it comes out a little differently. You know, yeah. the story's for everybody. It's not just for the religious. And so, you know, for, for me, as we tell the Easter story at Eastlake, it's really about making it relatable to everybody out there. Um, but in particular, for those that typically you wouldn't show up on a Sunday morning. And so we stay committed to that because there's just not a lot of this out there in the world today. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the critiques that I would have, um, even from like this, uh, taking this this thing of the idea of being a nobody, you, you know, in, in our world, church has always been, the church culture has always been good at the denigration of people or the denigration of pride or ego and you're a nobody. And then you read, you know, all these like self-help books of let's stop thinking low of ourselves and start thinking highly of ourselves. And I get that. I understand like that's a definite tension. that's like, yes. And, but, and whatever. I think the key piece on here is if somebody was watching me and like, I don't like the idea of being told that I'm a nobody. Um, I think the, the key piece on this is, yeah, but like we start with this and the reason that we can really embrace the fact that we are a somebody is because somebody who has the authority to tell us that we're a somebody, we're a somebody. Not 
your Instagram followers or your Facebook likes or whatever. Like you're not somebody because of that. That, is, that feels very, te- or even like a paycheck. Like a lot of times in an industry, it's I am whatever I make. Like my value is tied up in my wealth. And uh, this is kind of, you are somebody, but the reason that you're somebody is because somebody thought you were worth dying for. Right. And this is, you know, this is the Easter story in that way. So, um, yeah. It, it's crazy to think that, you know, we as a society are chasing um, those things all the time and um, trying to earn whatever it is, the paycheck, the notoriety, uh, all of those things that, that seem to be attractive to us, um, but they often end in emptiness and brokenness and, and um, you know, a shallow life uh, in so many ways. And it isn't until kind of a crucible moment in our lives for all of us that we come to know that somebody who gives meaning to everything. And yep. that's, that's, that's the Easter story. Yeah. Uh, so we had Steve Meyer uh, comment, hey, Brett Meyer's here. We were watching the movie Mary Magdalene and, uh, and, and the other night or whatever, some, some movie. At the end, it said something like, the Catholic Church has removed the prostitute stigma from Mary Magdalene. Do I know anything about that, by the way? Hi, John. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, so that's a good question. So um, there has been a, a movement recently to be like, was she really this? Does it feel like we're kind of like, like setting up a, a, a target? Like, are we, are we placing things on her that's not really, really true in that way? And I think uh, what, you, what you've seen, even uh, however many years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago now with Dan Brown's um, uh, book, I can't even remember the name of it right now. Um, it's got the Mona Lisa thing on it. What's it called? Yeah, don't know. Uh, uh, anyways, he... Da Vinci Code, yeah, Da Vinci Code. Uh, in, uh, is that the one where he, he, he's got one where Jesus <laughs> supposedly marries Mary Magdalene. Like right. that's the big story behind yeah. it. And, and that was the big piece of let's not, let's not defame her. Um, that's what religion has constantly done is defame the, the feminine in that way. Um, or, you know, do this to try and build up a case for, for manhood or whatever. Um, I, I don't know enough about that, Steve, if you're watching, to kind of um, speak to that. I, I, I do think that that has probably been, I mean, the Catholic Church, when that movie came out, was very much against that idea right. of it. And so I think that they were probably did like a little bit of a gut check to be like, maybe we have kind of overreacted on this. We've kind of um, hurt her image to try and make our... Uh, male-centric piece kind of grow up or whatever, be bigger or whatever. Uh, but I think the story, because I, th- I think um, what you see with Jesus is um, working with these women and really embracing like that kind of people group. Not to like, not to make them, I don't need to make them be better. I don't need to try and paint them in a certain picture. I can show grace to even people groups like this and, and really chooses to spend his time, would prefer. I think even when he goes to a Pharisee's house, I'm like, he's probably like, I got to do this because I got to check a box, but I'd much rather hang out at the bar with these other people, right? Yeah, you get so, that feeling of, of, of that with Jesus. It's so true. And, and as a church, we, we so often try to change the narrative or how it looks in some way, yeah. but Jesus never did that. He always worked through people uh, like Mary Magdalene or the Samaritan woman at the well that when they tell the story you can hear the, the, the truth and the love. Because when you think about it, you know, as a, as a Pharisee, as an American, you know, the need that we have for Christ um, doesn't typically come out of starving to death or, or from up some other, you know, worldly need. Um, it, it typically comes out of, um, you know, finding emptiness or choosing the wrong path. But when you look at Mary Magdalene and Jesus accepted her sin, she, he accepted her as she was, 
Um, he uh, lifted her up and told her story, the real story of who she was, and, and made her known personally by him. Didn't try to tell the story differently. Yeah. Um, it changes the. It, it makes the whole narrative attainable for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Elise chimed in and said. Uh, Angels and Demons by Dan Brown, and she's right. Yep. I, da Vinci Code is the one where something's written on the back of the... Anyways, yeah. thank you, Elise, for correcting me in the, in the story. <laughs> she's uh, great at that. Yeah, London wants to know, uh, John, is the Easter story your favorite story in the Bible? If not, which one is it? Mm. Also, hi, Daddy. So she's watching and wants but, to know, is it your favorite story in the Bible, or is yeah. there something that trans- beats that one? It's okay. I mean, you can be on Easter, man. Like, hey, it's a really good story. But, yeah. Like, I no, it absolutely is my favorite story. You know, yeah. when, you, when you think about um, the, the fact that um, everything that we believe uh, hinges on the idea that Jesus Christ was resurrected. And then the, the, the absolute magic and miracle that that was and having to tell that story. And then he chooses to tell the story through nobodies. Um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, yeah. it, it, if it's not my favorite story, it's certainly the most amazing one to me. So yeah. great question. Yeah, I think... I think one of the ones that's up there for me that every time, I mean, there's like certain movies that every time you watch it, you're just like, ugh. Like I've watched this 20 times that I feel like, ugh, whatever, right? Yeah. The one that I get, because I, I can get there with Easter, but like the prodigal son story for me, oh. it just is like, that one for me just stands out. I really feel like this is, that's kind of the shaping, like one of the shaping things of how I do church or, or how, you know, why, what we've tried to build here is a prodigal son type of church. Right. Um, I, I read a few books even before we launched the church. Um, Henry Nowlin wrote a, a Return of the Prodigal Son, um, Prodigal God by uh, Tim Keller, some, some resources that were like, this is, this is a different way of doing it. This is like, we're not doing church to like, you know, uh, appease the masses or, you know, confirm that we're all believing the same thing, but really a safe place for somebody who might turn one step in and there's all the emotions involved in that i feel like i could preach that series every year yeah. and i would be as emotionally involved as the first time uh, that i did it in, in, in that way so um brandon wrote jesus didn't check boxes he showed grace and kindness to both prostitutes and pharisees he sought them both out there's nothing in the gospels that would lead us to believe he's checking a box mm-hmm. um yeah i i i totally uh, agree with that um yeah, I think that that is, so perhaps what he's trying to bring up is um, he didn't check a box by going to the disciples or the, the, the Pharisees or whatever. He was kind of full grace on all, all people. I, I totally get that. Yeah. In that culture, it was more uh, within status quo to go hang out with the, the powerful and the rich and the privileged because that's how you gain, that's how you still gain it today. Like, right. do you want to be an influential member in the uh, community? Right. You're part of Rotary, you're part of this, you're part of these clubs. You go to these stupid banquets, and I'm sure you go to so many that you're sick and tired of doing them. And, oh, I love them. Oh, you liar. <laughs> He's lying right now. You can tell by looking at him. Yeah. Um, you tell me you hate him. Anyways, <laughs> I can tell you which ones you hate more than others. No, no I'm just kidding. No. I won't do that. I won't out you in that Fair way. Enough. But, uh, uh, you know, you understand that that's part of it and then, um, you know, moving in that direction too. So yeah, that's great, man. I, I love it. Um, you brought up a couple things in, in the, this week's lesson about, uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, about <coughs> women in Jesus ministry. Oh yeah. And it's just, it's interesting to me. And, and my question for you that I, that kind of, um, was in my head as you were, were preaching was, um, you know, why, why did Jesus use women so often um, in his storytelling and, and in, in his connection? So, you know, he, he would show up for dinner, but, but he would oftentimes end up, you know, speaking to the women or, or, or giving women the same status that, that all the men had. Um, that's got to be 
a big thing. Yeah, and then um, I mentioned it in, in passing about the early church and uh, women being in positions of leadership. And, and you would, you know, there's, there's, there's probably pushback for some people being like, yeah, but I remember that part in First Timothy where Paul tells women to kind of be in their place in terms of church. And that really was kind of probably unique to that Corinthian church. There was probably something going on in that setting that was unique. Because what we see in other places is, Peter, or is Paul, Paul writing letters and saying, hey, make sure to say hi to Phoebe. Make sure to say hi to so-and-so who are deacons of the church. And right. the, these are in positions of leadership. These women are coming from a culture where they have no, they can't even own their own property, right? Uh, in, in Rome, if you were a widow, um, you had to get remarried within a certain time frame where you begin to get fined by Caesar Augustus. Like empire would fine you. And the reason is because when you were a widow, then your property was yours, but they wanted it to be in the hands of men. So when you got married, then your property became co-owned with a man. And so they were so afraid of them being able to either mishandle it or, or be inappropriate. They would say, all right, you have two years to remarry. And then you start getting fined and the fines progressively get worse in this way. And so the church on these messages of taking care of widows these, they're, they're, they're pushing back against an empire that is oppressive against women. Yeah. Um, they're allowing them to have positions of leadership. And what's interesting about that piece too is uh, in one of his letters, he writes about Phoebe uh, as a deacon and, and, and attaches the title of deaconess of the church, which basically meant a board member at a church, right? And when the King James had his translation of the Bible interpreted, he's coming again from a male-centric dominated culture, right? Had the translators translate that word different, diakonos instead translates in that version as a servant of the church. Well, anybody can be a servant, right? Or a, a ministry coordinator, yeah. right? And so they, they translated that differently because of their scenario. Right. And then that just kind of like got in people's minds about, yeah, Phoebe was a servant of the church, but she wasn't this. But when you go back to the actual Greek language, she was absolutely that. Right. And it was just guy's way of like making something happen. So for sure, um, when you read, uh, if you've ever read that Rise of Christianity book by Rodney Stark, one of the highlight reasons of the way that the Christian religion grew was because of the amount of women and slaves within the Christian movement. Because they finally felt like they were somebody's, that they were franchised in a way that that they weren't getting anywhere else. And I think Easter, I hope that the Easter story kind of highlights and reminds us of of that piece uh, of it as well. So... Good man. Uh, yeah. Anything else? How, how, how you doing? How you doing with all this stuff? Things are crazy, aren't they? I mean, yeah. it, it just really you're is. You're a business owner. Like you, you, yeah. you're not an employee. Who's, you, you're dealing with employees right. who are, are going through this struggle. So right. that's scary times, you know. And and, and certainly, um, there are a lot of answers. What what are the right answers and the wrong answers? Uh, you know, who knows? Yeah. I think we're all just trying to deal with it. Uh, the best that we can. You know, I was talking with Brandon Coglin uh, during service today, and just uh, sharing a, a time of, of um, gratefulness that we we really take for granted uh, how much we're built for connectedness with one another. Sure. And you know the one thing that that I'll take away from this this time period um, is how much I value being connected with. Um, our church family, uh, people in the community, uh, people at work, um, you know, many of, of my workers are, are laid off and they're at home. And so trying to communicate with them, you know, via Zoom or, or text messages or, or phone calls, it's just, it's really, really difficult. Yeah. And so it wears on you. And sometimes you don't realize how much it's wearing on you until you, you, you just, you feel angry inside and, and frustrated and you miss the people that you love. And so, um, you know, that, that's really, uh, you know, kind of where I'm at now is, is just, it's been six weeks, you know, we, we've been apart from each other. It's been hard. We know it's the right thing to do to, to, you know, stay at home and, and be safe and, and, and take care of each other in, in that way. Um, but I'm ready. I'm ready to, uh, yeah. you know, get
get back together and, and get connected, you know, face to face. And I hope I never take for granted the opportunity to do that again because it's it's uh, it's challenging. Yeah. Um, what do you think? In every kind of situation like this, there's always opportunity to like grow and get better from it. That's the thing that's been rolling around in my mind. How do we get better from this? Yeah. What specifically in in regards to um, East Lake? role and presence in this community, how are you seeing something shape up where we get to be a part of something significant? And this is something that we grow from and, and, do, and come out better uh, in one area because of this. Maybe not, you know, we're going to be hurt and bruised and broken, but like you can always be better and have perspective on that. What, do you, what would you say you see? You know, we, we talk a lot about wear love. Uh, we talk a lot about, you know, all months of the year um, and not just during COVID that, you know, what we can do is um, be part of this community in a way that um, is um, giving ourselves uh, to efforts that are going on, uh, to loving other people in the community. Um, And I think not being able to stay connected with people uh, the way that we're used to um, has kind of shown a light on an opportunity for us as a church to continue to grow that part of what we do. You know, we, we do Sundays for people who typically wouldn't show up on a Sunday morning and we create this environment and there's so many people that work hard to create the environment. But then what do we do the other six days of the week? Um, and, and we know that the answer to that is to, to go out into the community, wear love, show the love of Jesus Christ to um, other people. And I think that this is, can be a launching point for us to take initiatives on and, and as uh, individuals, uh, as a church for sure, but as individuals as well, um, find some place to plug in and get connected and show people um, that you love them. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think we've seen that. I think what you see is on as much as you can, you, you know, people are doing that. And then realizing once that filter is off, I hope that we go, okay, now we can do it even to an nth degree. Now we can, now we know like how we always thought like, oh man, we're so stretched for time. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Well, now don't tell me that you're busy. You're not busy. Right. You're watching way too much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're begging for interaction. Yeah. So now how are you going to be able to maybe perhaps better leverage that and not just jump back into busyness once it opens up, but yeah. be, be strategic about it. And I think that people can definitely uh, do that. Uh, Danny uh, Doles or Stephanie Doles says this, how are you guys sharing Easter with your families while social distancing today? Wow. Practically, I mean, you've got grandkids. I do. And, um, and we were, we were on, uh, you know, the iPhone this morning, uh, watching the Easter egg hunt and, yeah. you know, just like the rest of, of everybody, you know, you yeah. can, it, that's, my wife would say that's the very hardest thing, not being able to be around our grandkids for this right, long. Right. It's, it breaks your heart. You it know? does, it's, yeah. it's a tough deal. But yeah, so we'll, we'll you know, I woke up this morning and, and shared that FaceTime with, with the grandkids, and we're going to drop by sugar cookies that uh, Leslie made that nice. the whole family loves. And, and uh, you know, we'll probably go home and lay on the couch and, you know, binge watch billions. Um, <laughs> I, I'm guessing. I, I don't know. We'll see. You know who else likes sugar cookies? Oh, yeah. I bet you. Oh, oh dude, man. I, uh, do it. Absolutely. Leslie's are so. fantastic. <laughs> Uh, prove it, Leslie. Um, all right. Uh, that'll do it. Thanks so much for uh, spending time. We are, we are pumped. Hey, next week, we start a brand new series called, um, I don't know how to put this correctly, but just, just do it. Blankety blank. Now what? Dot, dot, dot. Now what? A series on human flourishing. Basically, um, how do we, what, what does flourishing look like? How do, how do you grow stronger? How, what does like, health look like? Mental health, physical health, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, now with, with all of this. So I'm super excited about it. I think it's going to be about a four or five week series. Um, and uh, so please log in for that. And we'll be back at 10 o'clock 
uh, next week on our live stream with some fun stuff, as always. Have a great rest of your week. John, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Happy Easter, and hope you have fun spending it with uh, your family and friends from our family uh, to you. Happy Easter. We love you guys, and we'll see you soon.